welcome to Art Fictions. This is Gillian Knipe and part of my art practice is being the creator and producer of this podcast. Today we give a warm welcome to our host, the curator, writer, mentor and educator Vanessa Murrell, along with her guest artist Rosie Gibbons. Together they'll be talking about nothingness, cannibalism, scanning, ritual, cuteness, pouting, meatarianism, absurdity, shit and vomit, as well as ribcage tables, mocking Freud, recycling flesh, consuming oneself, moral fluidity, aspirational commodities, body horror, anatomical venuses, muscle suits, pointless products, human hair jumpers and the grotesque, plus an alien point of view, dried stomach, lampshades, the visceral versus the presentable body, humans resembling cockroaches, eating Spongebob figurines, and it will all be kind of dark and kind of beautiful. Just before we hear from Rosie and Vanessa, here's a quick reminder that if you rate us and comment, it really does help other people find our podcast. So welcome to Art Fictions, Rosie. Thank you for having me. It's honestly a pleasure. Today we're going to be discussing Japanese author Sayaka Murata's debut short story collection, Life Ceremony. It was published by Granta Books in 2022 and has been translated from Japanese to English. So it's a short collection of 12 stories where Murata explores societal pressures and expectations, capturing the rituals that shape our lives. And these rituals go from weddings to funerals, uh, everything in between. The stories delve into the themes of love, grief, conformity, identity, tradition, and uh, the challenges of fitting into modern society. They offer a reflection on our own lives and experiences. So Murata has also written the acclaimed novels like Earthlings and Convenience Store Woman, which I know you've read. And her texts often delve into the lives of marginalized individuals and provide commentary on the Japanese society and human behavior. So there's quite a lot to unpack here today. My first question is to know what drew you to Life Ceremony and made it a must read for you? Sure. Well, it's a book that has everything that I look for. It has a real dark humour and kind of body horror element that comes together to make these very strange and unsettling narratives that are both really appealing and kind of beautiful, but also quite disturbing and make you kind of question the way that society is organised. And yeah, I read Earthlings, which I loved, and before that, Convenience Store Women. And yeah, the two stories we're going to talk about today just felt most fitting to my work and also easier to talk about because they're a bit shorter. Yeah, so it was super difficult to choose which story was the one that really spoke to you. So which one do you want to start with? Yeah, so I think there's two stories in the book which are good parallels to each other because one is about a funeral and the other one is about a wedding and the book kind of looks at different rituals of, of everyday life and kind of rites of passages. So Life Ceremony is one we should start with, I think, and the other one is called A First Rate Material. But Life Ceremony is focused around an alternative society, which most of the stories are. They're kind of a society where something that might seem taboo within our world becomes the norm. And then the characters that we follow are often either choosing to participate or finding it strange to participate in that kind of otherworldly setup. So Life Ceremony, in this kind of... I was going to say dystopian, but actually it's not dystopian, it's just different. In this different society... When somebody dies, people gather together to cook and eat their bodies within this life ceremony. They call it an insemination party at the end. So you eat the bodies and then you kind of couple off and have sex and procreate. And the main character of the story, she starts 
by feeling a bit uncomfortable about this process and she makes friends with a colleague at work who then dies and uh, through the life ceremony she starts to understand and believe in the ethics of the society that she's in and think that the life ceremony is a good thing and a kind of intimate thing and something that she wants to partake in. So I guess we start the book in a way that as readers we are put into this context which we think is quite as you said dystopian in the sense that we're eating this human flesh and the protagonist is like I don't want to participate in this. She puts these like excuses of having her period or feeling Mm. ill and then it's like trying to avoid to eat the human flesh but throughout the book there's this transformation of values, of morals, and she ends up really enjoying this consumption of of flesh. And we were talking about this idea of consumption and cannibalism as consumption. And does it have like a sexual undertone to it? Yeah, in a way, it's not that she's disgusted by it, like the reader feels, but she is more apathetic. She just isn't really sure what she thinks. And she remembers a time when she was younger where it was not usual to eat people and that now it is. And she's confused by how morality has changed and where she fits in with that. But yeah, in terms of the sex and death is always kind of a a double pronged thing, I think, in life and in art, you know, the creation and destruction. And in that story, it's, it's interesting because it's almost about recycling is the way mm. that the character frames it to us once she buys into the whole process. It's like the energy from these bodies is then put into the procreator act and then new life is created. But I do think that the author is really also questioning this patronormative way of thinking about sex as well and also questioning what the purpose of sex is and in a lot of her books as well I think she is interested in the idea of kind of being asexual a lot of her characters try not to have sex or they want to have relationships where they don't have sex Mm. so I think she's interested in questioning essentially like conformity yeah and in the stories we're talking about she's just setting up conformity that's so different to our own yeah I guess something to mention is that the the reason they are eating this human flesh all of the organs all of the meat is because there is a possibility of human extinction in this society and there's this idea that by eating the meat it's like a ritual which is in some ways healing or a closure Mm. with this death and to some ways it it kind of motivates people to couple and then procreate yes and not in a romantic way in in a purely kind of utilitarian so there's this kind of dilemma like sex is it pleasurable is it not pleasurable is it just purely to procreate then there's other dilemmas that come in the book like uh, these children's centers that appear i don't know if you want to like talk a bit about these dilemmas and and the relation with the abject sure so the children's centers it's very much like in in brave new world where you can kind of send off your baby that you've had during a life ceremony usually with a stranger to then be brought up by the state in the story some people are pro that and some people are against that and again it, the author's really thinking about morals where morals come from and how they're constructed and also how kind of interchangeable they are so maybe i'll read a quote because the quote in that story that i love it's so short but i think it sums up the point which is normal is a type of madness isn't it i think it's just the only madness society allows is called normal I think you were telling me about an interview with her where she talks about aliens coming to Earth and kind of looking down and seeing human interaction and kind of the way that we live our lives and it being arbitrary and absurd. And I think that's something I'm interested in in general. We use clothes, we have furniture, we have these buildings. Every other creature in in this planet is unclothed. (laughs) Like, imagine how aliens perceive humans. Mm -hmm. Like, they must be thinking we are such weird creatures. Yeah, and actually her book Earthlings, which I'd also recommend, the main character in that, uh, she thinks that she's from another planet and it's about her trying to get back to her home planet but also observe anthropologically Mm. the way that humans are living. 
But that link to animals, I think, is also really interesting because the two stories we're going to talk about, they both kind of are constantly thinking about the difference between how non-human animals and humans interact and also the differences and similarities between them. So shall I read that long quote? Yeah. I'll try and do it in my radio voice. (laughs) (laughs) Guests at a life ceremony would eat the deceased's body and also seek an insemination partner among the guests. As soon as a man and woman coupled off, they would leave the ceremony and go outside for insemination. Based on the idea of birthing life from death, this ceremony was the perfect fit for the mentality of the masses and their unconscious obsession with breeding. Recently, I'd been getting the feeling that humans had begun to resemble cockroaches in their habits. Cockroaches would apparently all gather together to eat the deceased one of their number, and I'd also heard that cockroaches about to die wouldn't lay a number of eggs. Tribes that gathered to mourn and eat the deceased had existed since antiquity, though, so it wasn't as though the custom now had only just sprung up among humans. It's really beautiful. I mean, it just shows the legacy of these rituals. But I actually Googled it and cockroaches don't do these rituals. Really? Oh, I love <laughs> but that. But cannibalism does exist within animals. But, but sometimes it's for protection or for other, mm. for other reasons. But um, it's more the fact that we eat animal flesh, but not human flesh, yeah, I think. is well, the, There is yeah. a part in the book that I found really interesting where the character who actually dies, uh, says he's a meatarian mm-hmm. because he wants to only engage in eating meat in order to taste better for the people that eat him when he's dead. Yeah. Which I thought was such a conflicting concept in today's times where, you know, people are more and more vegetarians or vegans. Yeah, and it kind of makes you question what you think because the things that seem very uncomfortable to us, like cannibalism, is argued in a way that seems almost strangely reasonable but maybe we should circle back around because you did ask me about the abjects mm-hmm. and I think this link to the the grotesque and the bodily is like a thread throughout the stories that I find very attractive because basically the, the idea of the abject is like a breakdown between the self and the other and like a discomfort and breakdown from meaning that comes from that I just read this book called The Monstrous Feminine that kind of talks about this in more detail mm-hmm. which is based on Julia Kristeva's theories what are these theories? So that idea of the breakdown in order, where my body and the boundaries between that and the outside world is discomforted somehow. And mm-hmm. that might be because bodies are blending into animals or because something which should be inside becomes outside or outside becomes inside. So that's why we have kind of a disgusting reaction to like shit and vomit. Things that come from the inside to the outside because we no longer know where the boundaries of us end and other things begin. So obviously cannibalism is a perfect example of that because somebody else's body is kind of becoming part of my body and Mm. that's very confusing in relationship to identity and also the natural order of things Mm. you know that's really really interesting and there's another part that is present very very strongly in this book and it's this idea of accepting where we are in this moment uh, because many of the characters they want to go back to a previous time when this this was not normality or they think about the future what would become of human existence in this case, like without family structures, with just binary people mating. And there's this whole focus, like this carpe diem motto of just live the present, accept the norm, participate in these rituals. Yeah, I think that's why I was careful to say that it's not actually a dystopian story, because I think there's quite positive elements of it too, which is to do with appreciating where we're at. And I think it links really well to the idea of the absurd. And I always think absurdity is not something nihilistic, pessimistic. The idea is like, basically life is meaningless and therefore it is meaningful. Mm. Like we have free will and we choose to go on struggling even though we 
can't really understand why we're here and especially in relationship to atheism as well like a lot of absurd theories the idea that you know we are alone and therefore making meaning within a meaningless world gives us purpose and is actually quite a beautiful thing so we didn't actually explain because at the end of the story she has the life ceremony of her friend so she eats him and then she goes out for a walk she goes to this beautiful beach she meets this man she offers him some of the food they eat it together and he says i'm gay so we can't do the insemination ceremony he then gifts her some semen and she walks into the sea and inseminates herself with it it's quite an optimistic ending yeah and also the fact that that i think the fact that that character is gay means a lot as well because mm. he's living outside of the norms and i think these books are really and to some way she is also because she's inseminating herself yeah exactly they're choosing Not... how they want to participate within the society that the book creates um, mm. but maybe i'll just read the last ending moment because I think it's really beautifully written so she says the night deepened and the sky and sea turned pitch black Yamamoto's life was slowly absorbed into my flesh as I blended with him into one life I closed my eyes my legs still immersed in our beloved water the sound of the waves caressed the eardrums of us all there engaged in insemination it's kind of dark it's kind of beautiful yeah it's honestly it's incredible and it's such a plot twist like the end she's really enjoying this moment and it's very cinematic as well you were talking to me about this uh, book that you read that you visualized this scene like this oh i was just talking about that book perfume where at the end it's about a character who makes this scent that basically makes people go mad with lust and then there's this huge orgy at the end and it's really cinematic as well yeah but i just love that idea of the beach and everyone's out on the open having sex as well because it's not a shameful thing anymore that's the thing not that it's shameful now either it's just different Yeah, but they do talk in the book that in the times that you and me live now, sex is seen as dirty. That's why we hide ourselves. But in the book, people can just do it out there in the public. I'm not sure if that's what she means, though. I think it's more like in the book, they have sex like animals. It's not a hidden private thing. It's a public thing. Exactly. For like the good of the race. Yeah. (laughs) And I guess with this closing that you just read, it will be a good moment to move on to the next book that we want to talk about, which is called A First Rate Material. So do you want to give us a bit of an overview of what this story is about? Sure, yeah, it's the first story in the book. So it starts with a character who goes for dinner with her friends and she's wearing a jumper that's knitted from human hair and it slowly becomes clear that this is a world where human remains are reused after death, either as clothing or as furniture or as jewellery. And the main character is getting married and her fiancé is strangely averse to this process of reusing bodies we take the position of the protagonist who loves it and then throughout the story she's trying to convince him more and more that this process is good and she's gifted a veil on her wedding night made from the skin of her father-in-law and her partner who then sees the veil sort of strangely has a cathartic moment where seeing his father's dead skin over the face of his wife makes him feel like he fits more into the society. Mm, There are so many topics to discuss here. I mean, there's this idea of the fact that wearing the skin of the human, does that bring us closer to that person? Does it like enhance a connection with them? Is that the husband healing with his traumas? Maybe he he didn't have a relationship with his father. And it's very like a Freudian kind of mocking. Yes, it's a very funny bit where they're talking about why he doesn't want to wear the human skin. Actually, maybe I have the quote. Uh, How come he's so neurotic about human materials? And then the woman says, I don't know, it's probably something to do with having a bad relationship with his father when he was little. He ought to get some counselling, it's abnormal. (laughs) So it's kind of making fun of, in a way, how we read into trauma. 
But also, more seriously, it's like, well, the question throughout the stories is, what is normal? And yeah. it's just kind of happenstance that the society has developed the way that it has. By the, it could be another way and we would find it completely acceptable too. And morals are fluid. Exactly. I mean, by the end of the book, I even question my own morals and values because uh, the protagonist in this case is really defending her stance of like reusing human skin is so valuable. I mean, it is barbaric. Not to do that because why would you not recycle a material and she finds his values barbaric for burning humans. Because it's not being recycled. Exactly. So there's, there's this idea of waste. It's like this idea of immortality as well. These objects that are being made with human flesh, with human bones, skin, do they live longer than humans Mm -hmm. themselves? And again, it's breaking down this boundary between what is a being and what is an object and the, the boundaries between Life and death, but also yourself and another thing. I guess similarly to the first book that we were describing, there's this cycle of life repeating itself. You're a human, you live your life, but then you're transformed into being an object, which is more permanent than yourself. And the same time in the first book with the eating, the consumption of the human, it's kind of transformed into a new being that comes out of there. Yeah. But what I really loved about this story as well was how sculptural it was you really kind of imagine all of these objects like uh, bone rings tooth earrings rib cage tables dried stomach lampshades i mean it's truly incredible it's really beautiful and it captured my imagination so much as a teenager i loved hr geiger and i went to his house in switzerland where he has all these chairs they're made of um, spines and stuff and it's got a very science fiction aesthetic to it which i find really like quite intriguing Mm. and there's this kind of again barrier between what's beautiful and what's grotesque right yeah would you wear something made of uh, human skin (laughs) well I was thinking about getting my baby teeth made into a necklace (laughs) (laughs) there you go I think the beauty of like these objects that are described is the fact that something that's temporary is kind of made permanent and the fact that these scars or uh, markers of life are kind of like uh, shown in a in an object in a permanent way so you can remember and honor that person and does love give more value to the object yeah because when she wears the veil which is really beautifully described as this like papery thin skin fabric that you wouldn't be able to get from any other non-human material it's described as this quite like sentimental moment they both feel quite moved by it and it really turns it around because obviously when you think of the idea of wearing your father as a veil it's incredibly uncomfortable there's this idea of touch and of warmth and of safety or light she's describing how the light goes through these pores and it feels truly incredible the sensation of wearing human skin Mm -hmm. And, and also we should talk about the fact that that story has a lot of links to kind of social etiquette as well And the human remains objects are also very expensive. They are like the aspirational commodity too, which I think adds another dark element to it too, where the idea she's got a loan out in order to buy this human hair jumper. Because it's going to last her for her entire life. The story starts with these observations of people in this kind of fancy tea room and they're all being incredibly mannered and she's worried that she spilt jam on her top. And um, they're talking about how they're going to move to the suburbs when they get married in order to like have a better life for their kids. And there's kind of these links to the conventions that we have in our society, which people can choose whether or not they want to participate in. And so it almost mirrors the wearing of the human skin with the choice, for example, to have a family, which is something which is much more relatable. Yeah. 
No, that's so true. And there's this idea of buying this very expensive item uh, and then keeping it in storage and not ever using it because she can't use uh, the human hair sweater she's wearing in front of her husband at the beginning of the book because he is completely horrified horrified by it. Uh, So there's this idea of like wearing this social status symbol to impress others. But then I also viewed this uh, part as like body control, which I know that you didn't share that same kind of view or feeling about this segment as, as I read it. But I kind of felt like there was this pursuit of her husband to control her body, not allowing her to wear human skin items. No, I, I do agree with you. I think that's that's part of it. I just also felt because we empathise with his position more because it linked more with our society. There was yeah. confusion there in terms of whether our main character was being manipulated or whether he was actually taking the ethical position. But I think that's a good point to talk about the fact that it is a marriage. The ritual of marriage has so many strange traditions when you actually think about it. And I think the mirroring of that ritual with the fact that they're wearing all these human veils and stuff, it kind of shines a light on the absurdities of the way that we live our lives as it is. Yeah. And the, the strangeness of marriage and the fact that it's arbitrary the way those traditions have worked out in terms of the way the patriarchal system has like made marriage the way it is it's not like an organically natural human thing to necessarily get married or even necessarily live in like a nuclear family situation Mm. I don't think anyway and so it it makes me kind of question everything do you want to share the quote of the ending of the story yeah that's kind of strangely positive romantic she says right now the live Naoki not yet converted into a material was holding my hand we were spending our very short time as living beings sharing our body heat Feeling this life was a precious momentary illusion, I squeezed his slim fingers even tighter. And so lovely. That's so lovely. And yeah. I think it's one of the only moments where there is actual real connection between this couple. And it was through the sharing of wearing the father's, the father's skin. skin. Yeah. yeah, because I think actually a lot of the characters are alienated throughout the book. A lot of, a lot of the stories are about trying to find connection or trying to actually live inside your body and feel present and, and failing at that. Mm. So when the small moments come where there is a proper feeling of, of love it, it's it's rare but also makes it more powerful I think yeah I know that both of us felt that the short story Pucci was very striking and I wonder what does that story question as, as you know as readers yeah it's kind of the most <laughs> fucked up one I think it's the one that made me feel the most ethically confused about who had the power and what the message was but essentially it's a story of two young teenage girls who keep a man as a pet They call him Poochie and he acts like a dog and they feed him. He wears a collar. He walks on all fours. I think it's just very uncomfortable because you're assuming some kind of fetish relationship, or at least I was. Mm. And you're you're trying to work out like who's getting what out of that dynamic. So these two girls after school go to the mountains to feed Poochie. And you as a reader think it's a dog, but then realise it's an old man. It's a man, yeah. uh, Wearing glasses who manically shouts... Finish it by two. That's yeah. the only thing he says. Almost like that's his bark. Yeah. And then they kind of like pet him and then that's all. And feed him. And feed him. Yeah. We both found it so disturbing. And I still question why. Because everyone's taking their own roles. They're accepting their roles. But for some reason, it just feels very disturbing. I think because you expect that the power is in the man, but actually it might be with the girls. It's kind of unclear whether he is there by choice or because he can't get food anywhere else yeah but the fact that he's saying finish it by two I just kept thinking it feels like that's something you would say in, an, in like an office environment yeah like finish it by two yeah so I almost wondered if he'd rejected his 
role as like a functioning cog of society and decided to become a dog. In one review that I was reading, they interpreted him like a homeless person. But it kind of has to do as well with conformity and with labour, which I know are topics that you also like are interested in your own work. And this idea of what you said, like freedom and restraint, like at the end, this dog is actually free. Like this dog, which is a human, <laughs> is actually free and like he's not locked, you know? Yeah, they say he's not tied up, but he decides to stay, basically. Every yeah. time they go, he's still there. It's unclear, but it's in my mind a lot. Yeah. And I guess now we can't wait to hear what your work is about, because it is so very much intertwined with the themes of this book. So Rosie, you're a British artist who makes performances, videos, sculptures and installations uh, that feature your body. You use absurd humour to explore gender performativity, sexual politics, consumer desire, labour and the slippery overlaps between these. The mindset behind your work is often of someone attempting to participate in contemporary life but not quite managing. This is like honestly so related to the book. So please tell us more. <laughs> well, that was a good overview. I mean, I think the way the book is relevant is definitely trying to observe the everyday absurdities in life and kind of highlight what's strange about them. It's like a mindset. Yeah, I always speak about this kind of alien mindset, something I try and get into to sort of feel slightly outside of things like gender and gender performativity and kind of observe it as though I, I don't quite understand how to do it. And so that often results in humour because I'm kind of misinterpreting purposefully things or exaggerating them to a ridiculous extent where it no longer makes sense. Yeah, and even in your Instagram bio, you mm. mentioned uh, what do you get when you cross a performance? What do you get, what do you get if you cross a performance artist with a comedian? A joke that no one understands. <laughs> That's also a bit self-deprecating about performance art, though. I do like it. <laughs> so uh, you were talking about this idea of absurdity. And I know we were talking about, like, for instance, Albert Camus as one of the theorists who's talked a lot about absurdity. How do you, you know, absurdity feed into your work? It's a tricky one because it has so many different definitions by different philosophers and stuff. I think I, in a way, I use it in the more colloquial sense, which is like a thing that seems bizarre or somehow unsettling. Camus' story of Sisyphus is this idea that you push the boulder up the hill, the boulder rolls back down, you push it back up again. It's this kind of pointless circuit of life where you're kind of striving to a goal which is ultimately <laughs> meaningless and then repeating it. I really don't think that that is nihilistic, although some people would say so. I think it's actually positive, which comes back to how we spoke about the stories and this mm. kind of the pointlessness of life actually making it meaningful. But these cycles definitely inspire my work, like everyday processes of keeping things clean and they become dirty. But I think it's easier to talk about specific yeah. projects. That's what I was going to yeah. get into. Can you tell us more about your recent project planned uh, obsolescence? Sure. So I think a work that fits very well with the first rate material story, which is the previous one we spoke about, is this piece called Birthday Suit that I made earlier in the year. And it's essentially a business suit made by stitching and sewing together photographs of my naked body and made using photogrammetry scanning technology. And so with that, I can literally put on my own skin. And I think that links so well to the first great material. How many layers of skin can you have? Like your skin <laughs> over your skin <laughs> over yeah, your mean, skin? <laughs> layers and layers of my own body on top of each other. It's almost like putting on myself again and again and again. Yeah. And I know that you use this uh, digital check motif as mm -hmm. well as uh, a reference to nothingness. Well, not in this particular work, as part of the series. Yeah, so the series planned obsolescence. It involves sculptures, uh, video, performance and works on paper. 
um, and it's based on bodies and domestic printers combining. And I use as part of that this grey and white check, which comes from that photogrammetry scan that I mentioned earlier, which is basically when you have cameras circling the body, which then take a 3D image. And when you get back that image, you have both a PNG flat form, which is what I made that skin suit out of. And you also have the 3D digital body, which is made of this um, grey and white check, which is something that I use again and again in that series to represent for me the layer beneath the skin. For example, velvet might represent the flesh layer when the skin is peeled off and then below that you have the organ layer. The check layer is kind of a strange negative space layer for me. And sometimes digitally. you put it at the top layer as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm always confuse. changing around the layers. So that project was um, inspired by the future of technology, which the 3D printing represented to me and also the past of technology, which is like the shitty 2D office printer, which is constantly breaking and frustrating for me mm. so I think I was wondering about the way that bodies can combine with objects and the future of like the cyborgian body where it might not always be as efficient as we expect like the 2d printer is I famously saw, bad yeah I saw some beautiful images in your studio where you had scanned your own body and created these elongated fingers and double faces and it, they were really amazing. Thanks. <laughs> so hear what you said about the printed photographs. You know, objects become bodies, bodies become objects. Mm. And that is so linked with what we've just been talking about as well. Mm. And do you want to talk about your eating myself piece? Sure. So that's a small sculpture that I've shown recently at Pictorum Gallery. It's part of this bigger planned obsolescence series again. And because that project was inspired by different types of scanning, I started thinking about body scanning so there's this thing the human project I think it's called where they sliced up bodies and then scanned each of the slices so you can kind of see how all the organs are arranged in a, in a 2D way and I wanted to combine that type of scanning with the 3D photogrammetry scan so it's a small sculpture made of fabric which sort of looks like a fabric version of one of these chopped bodies but within the stomach there is a 3D print of a tiny version of myself and so I was thinking that it was almost though I had eaten a version of myself I was consuming myself and it was inspired also partly by these scans of people who've eaten strange objects so there was one where somebody had eaten like these little spongebob figurines and I thought it was kind of interesting, this like cute cartoon character combined with like the anatomy of the body. So mm. it is sort of inspired partly by that because the 3D scan looks like a kind of toy. Yeah, too. it's true. Mm -hmm. And the, the cartoon is something present in your work as well. I think aesthetically, yeah. Yeah. And this idea of the cuteness, which we, we will also touch into. Maybe you can tell us more about your dirty pillows, which I believe, is it your first uh, series of sculptures? Yeah, it's kind of an on ongoing work, but the first sculptures I ever made were called Dirty Pillows. And they were made by photographing certain body parts, printing them onto satin, and then blowing them up and stuffing them very large. So there's a series called Pout, which is made using my lips. Um, and then there's also my bum wearing a bra, flip, flipped upside down and then stuffed. So they're all of these kind of stuffed body parts. And when enlarged, these body parts become much more kind of grotesque and strange and the lips, you can see all of the uh, wrinkles and the disparities in colour. They sort of look a bit like a vagina, but also like they could be an intestine or something. I really like that when you make things big, something which maybe has associations with being sexy, like a pout or like a, the lips, become kind of uncomfortable. And to me, it references like the visceralness of the body in reality versus like the presentable body, you know, mm. beneath our facade of what we showed people, there's this kind of leaking, bleeding, noisy, uncomfortable body beneath, which yeah. is maybe hidden or 
it's something to be embarrassed about, but we and, all share it. And you also speak about this taking the literal too far. Mm. It's like the pouch is like this symbol of like this big lips is the most sexy thing in society in today's times. And you're extending that, amplifying that to the point that it's really quite brutal. <laughs> and It comes back to this idea of trying to look at the world from like an alien point of view. It's like, okay, so if I pout in my photograph, which when I was a teenager, that's what everybody did, that will make me the most alluring. So what would be the extreme version of that would be to make my pout as big as my whole head or mm. to kind of wear it as a huge body. But obviously that has the reverse effect because it becomes kind of grotesque or strange or funny. Yeah, so something to mention about this series, they are pillows, but they're not just sculptural pillows, right? You also have formed photographic collages out of them. And in what ways do you use these pillows? Yeah, they kind of keep coming back through the work in different ways, whether sculpturally in combination with found or everyday objects or through like photographic assemblages or collages. And the title Dirty Pillows, by the way, comes from uh, the film and book Carrie, the Stephen King book, because that's what Carrie's mother calls her boobs as kind of an insult that she should be ashamed of them, her dirty pillows. But this link to horror, I think, keeps coming back through and again and again. I'm very inspired by like body horror movies mm. and books, which is why Life Ceremony too is, feels so relevant. Mm. I made um, a whole series that was based off these anatomical Venuses, but also linking that to horror movies like The Human Centipede, like the Hellraiser franchise, like Alien. And that book I mentioned earlier, The Monstrous Feminine, kind of really reconfigures those and talks about the, the female characters in horror movies as these feminist metaphors for like the abject body mm. that's super super interesting and maybe it's a good moment to move on to another of your works mm-hmm. uh, titled the new me which i was very very honored to have seen in chicago and you made this work with data so how did this video project come about so it was conceived last year through a fictional dystopian style company that I invented called the Ilium Corporation. And that became the structure for the whole series where I then invented these pointless parody life enhancing products, um, which I made adverts for. So there's three videos. One of them is a cleaning suit, which kind of resembles a muscle man outfit, which you can use to clean your house with. The second one is a parody of a wellness machine in which you pedal with your feet, which helps your hair to stroke your face, giving you the feeling of kind of being like a cat. And on the stomach, there's a machine which was actually appropriated. It's an 18th century vibrator, but I used it as a kind of purring mechanism. Um, And then the third film is a toothbrushing machine, which is meant to increase intimacy, although obviously it doesn't really. You strap it onto your face and you can brush a friend or partner's teeth and it kind of emulates a strange kiss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that, so the whole project was kind of looking at how desire for commodities are constructed, the kind of bodies that are used to advertise them, but also the, the kind of goals that we have in terms of the products that, you, that we buy, how they affect identity and also how they link to gender. Yeah, I mean, these products that we are being sold in a way are complicating our lives more, right? I'm always looking for these kind of long, complicated chain reactions, ways to do quite simple things in a complicated way, mm. both to kind of insert some agency into like the objects and how we interact with them and the manufacturer's intentions but yeah also to kind of maybe like waste time in like an efficiency driven society you know yeah it's so like contradictory in Mm -hmm. a way and from these products I guess the fact that you know they are video works but also NFTs it it makes them like pointless in a way because you can't actually physically use them yeah so I wanted the absurdity of the project to be taken to another level and that the only way you could actually purchase the products is in digital format as NFTs 
And it kind of interested me the idea that you might have like a metaverse home or a metaverse body, which obviously doesn't need to be maintained. You don't need to clean it. You don't need to brush your teeth, but that maybe items would still be put in those spaces as like a mark of some kind of social capital. So maybe you still have a Dyson Hoover in your metaverse home, even though you don't have to use it. So yeah, you could only buy these products as digital versions, which I thought was kind of interesting. And the aesthetics that you used uh, to make these videos, they had these adverts like uh, DIY housewife, I wanted to use a sort of retro-futurist yeah. aesthetic because I'm always really interested in like projections of the future but made in the past when people haven't quite understood what's possible mm. yet. It kind of skews their understanding of what technology will become. Mm. So the three products that I made are very low-tech mm. and they're kind of cobbled or Frankenstein together from existing items from the past rather than, you know being made in VR or something that would actually be a future dystopian thing. I was kind of imagining what the future would look like if I lived in the past, do you see what I mean? <laughs> That's so fun. I mean, uh, there is an element of play in all of this, mm -hmm. right? But I know that you do mention that your process is very strict and methodical. But at the same time, when you're looking at these videos, it's like so fun to just see how you're like really pushing your body to the limits. To take something that might seem silly, incredibly serious, yeah. I think is very important. That's kind of what she does in the book as well, because the conceit can be described in one sentence, you know, people eat people and then they have sex. That's basically the description <laughs> of her world she's created. But by really being rigorous about what that world might look like, you learn so much more and you, you can think so much more about how it reflects our society, you know, which That's I hope is kind of what my work is doing. That's so true. And there's this fascination you have with the cute as well, which kind of links to the last story where there are these two cute little girls. Uh, like you have this aesthetic of the cute, particularly in this series of The New Me. Did you look into that aesthetic as well? I mean, I think because I remake things which might seem grotesque or visceral in fabric, it gains a kind of cartoon aesthetic, which kind of links to the cute too. But within The New Me, I was specifically interested in how cuteness is used to kind of sell commodities and the way that the cute item for the consumer becomes both the child of the consumer, but also we have some kind of power over it. Like we become the mother of of the item. We're, it's, it's in our care, but then within that, we, there's a certain like desire to kind of have dominion over it. Like there's an amazing study where they got people to look at puppies and kittens mm. and they gave them bubble wrap. And the people who were looking at the puppies popped the bubble wrap much more aggressively mm. than people who weren't looking at them or were looking at an, uh, an adult animal. So there's this kind of strange desire to sort of destroy or squish when you see the cute thing, which I find quite intriguing. Oh my God. And I know I read as well in one of the essays that was written about this work, when you're watching cat content as well, how mm. it soothes your anxiety, mm -hmm. which links to your work. One of the three products that you Yeah, have. the wellness, the wellness machine is meant to make you feel as though you are a cat maybe <laughs> and which actually you know I keep linking back to the book but you know yeah. this link between the human and, and the, the animal. animal you know it's something I've always been slightly interested in too it's like which animals do we want to identify with like it's sexy to be a playboy bunny but is it sexy to be like a playboy alligator how do we relate our humanness to the non-human animals yeah this goes as well to what we create meaning to like why is this cat sexy and not the alligator yeah <laughs> the world's sexiest cow. I think there was a pole. It was quite sexy though. <laughs> and I really want to dig into one of your older works, which is called Hen Night, mm. which is very related to the book because it literally refers to the Hen Nights. And we, of course, spoke about a story relating to a wedding. Mm -hmm. Sure, I made that in Mexico. 
and it responded to like the British hen night tradition. I called it a web, but it was really a kind of mat made up of L signs and then reconfiguring words from hen night sashes. And then I had this costume where I had these extra legs. So I became a kind of spider on my hen night web. And I was thinking, you know, why do we use the hen? Why could it not be a spider's night? And oh, and on the end of all of the shoes on the spider, I had used the little penis straws that you use in a hen night too. But I guess I was just thinking through the kind of absurdity, bizarrety of the the hen night ritual and what it really says. Like the fact that you wear a learner sign. And Vanessa actually Mm. hadn't heard of this before. No. And that's why it was quite interesting in Mexico because obviously they have very different wedding traditions there. So to have that conversation about how different people prepare for marriage because when I saw the large L I, I just kept think, thinking, thinking it was loser <laughs> loser and also like in Spain I don't know if here but uh, you have the L when you drive it means like learner that's the same yeah 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 because I think you're learning how to be married yeah but it's quite interesting how you're also tapping into the rituals we partake in mm-hmm. in our current society mm-hmm in a very similar way to the book. Misunderstanding it or recontextualizing it to make it stranger or to shine a light on the strangeness that already exists. Yeah, and I guess this comes to like a natural progression mm. where we're dying to know where can we see your work? Do you have any upcoming shows? Mm-hmm. So that work I spoke about earlier, the eating myself is part of a bunch of work that in a show at Pictorum Gallery. There's a group exhibition called Bodies, Gluttony and Me. And that is until 15th of June. Then at my studio in the Bomb Factory, we're opening a show which will have some of the planned obsolescence works, which we spoke about earlier that were originally for a show called Body Poetics, where I was paired with Helen Chadwick. It was a really good show curated by Marcel Joseph and Becca Pellifry. So yeah, a couple of those sculptures will be in London until the 31st of May. And if you do come, then let me know because my studio is just around the back, so I'll show you around. And then very exciting, I'm going to Taiwan in August to be part of a group show called Are You Working Now? Which is all about labour, curated by Mike Stubbs. And that's at the National Taiwan Museum of Fine Arts. So there's a few things going on. And then I probably need to make some new work at some point. That's incredible. A question that I haven't got to ask you yet is like, the fact that you're going to Taiwan, you know, will you explore some of the rituals that are local to that place? Or are you interested in tapping into that? I mean, I think all my work is really about my own experience. And so because of that, it is rooted in British culture, but I'm very intrigued to see what other people do. But I wouldn't want to appropriate those for my own work. You know, I think Mm. I have to be rooted in my own identity. Mm. I can only really speak about myself and how I experience, like, you know, gender or any of these things. But it's interesting to see how the work translates or doesn't translate. And then that makes interesting conversations. I think my more recent work is more universal. That hen night one was just very specific. Yeah, true. Mm. I mean, imagine, as you said, the hen night in Mexico, Mm -hmm. like the lost in translation. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm just thinking of a question that I I forgot to ask Mm -hmm. you. (laughs) It kind of relates to your future projects. And I'm wondering if you're planning to do any more pointless machines in the future to extend this, you know, new me project. Well, I recently found in the library at the Museum of the Home this drawing by um, a satirical cartoonist from the 16th century, I think, called the Mole Handy, and it's basically a design for a housemaid of the time made using the tools of her trade. So she has, like, a, a washboard as her body, she has a thimble as the head, her arms are bellows. So I really want to use that as the inspiration to make a series of sculptures that make human beings out of objects mm. in a kind of cyborgian way having some kind of mechanical element as well. I think that's the next stage. Yeah, like a kinetic. Yes. Because at the moment, all of the mechanical elements, you are moving them yourself. Sort of like puppetry, yeah. Yeah. Which I'm not 
going to move away from totally, but I think it will be interesting for audiences to be able to interact with them too. To make it more participative. Yeah. Okay, that's really interesting <laughs> because uh, I've seen your performances and you are like the director of mm -hmm. the orchestra. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have to work it out conceptually because mm. a lot of the reasons why the sculptures come alive is to either reject like a passive position or mm. to kind of look back at a possible like objectifying gaze. So yeah. I suppose if the viewer is then becoming part of that process, I need to work out what that means for the sculpture's agency. And that links so well with, with the book because the cover is an eyeball <laughs> and I'm wearing an eyeball that you made for me today. Mm -hmm. And I know that you use a lot of eyeballs as a strategy to in relation to the gaze. Yeah, I know. The fact that the eyeballs on the cover is like kind of by accident, but it's very like on brand. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I keep using the eyeballs. I think very simply, yeah, it's a way for them to look back and to be my eyes when I'm not there because often the performances will have a life as an installation afterwards mm. or before. And well, I, I can see you have another book here that you've brought with you. <laughs> so are you reading it or are you planning to read it? Well, I, it just arrived this morning, but if you like this kind of thing, it seems great. It's called Walking Practice by Dolkey Min. And another book that I recently read called Slug by Megan Milks, which is another short story collection I'd recommend, which is similarly kind of about the visceral body and also about trying to find emotional connection. Amazing. And I know you've read Angela Carter, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I mean, your list of books was really incredible. Yeah, I think I listed a lot of books that have a magic realist element. And it really appeals to me like everyday life, but where something is slightly different. I'm really, really looking forward to going through these books. And of course, being the master of like horror aesthetics, <laughs> which uh, kind of recommendations do you have for any horror movies? Oh, so many. But John and I watched um, Evil Dead 2 the other day which mm. is amazing the stop-motion animation of the bodies is just incredible it's like quite disgusting but also very funny and then also a film called men it's directed by the same director as their ex machina yeah ah. so it's called men and it's about a woman who goes to a town where all of the men are the same person and then at the end there's like an incredible birthing scene is mad and i also wanted to mention raw Uh -huh. which is a French film about cannibalism. So she goes to a veterinary school and she's a vegetarian and it's kind of slowly the process where she realizes she has this family heritage of, of eating humans. Oh my God, and that is like so directly yes. linked to this. So I just wanted to thank you, Rosie, for your time and for being on Art Fictions. Thank you. Thank you, listeners, and also thanks to today's guest, Rosie Gibbons, along with our lovely host, Vanessa Murrell. When and if you feel so inspired, you're more than welcome to email us, artfictionspodcast at gmail.com. Let us know about your creative endeavors or just say hi. You can also DM our Art Fictions Podcast Instagram. As for credits, Art Fictions was recorded by Andy Amirshah and an unedited filmed version can be seen on YouTube at Cubit Community Radio and Mixcloud. For this abridged podcast, the music was written and performed by Griffin Knipe, while award-winning animator Joanna Quinn of Beryl Productions created our Jolly logo. Happy listening, reading, seeing and making. Till next time.